Good morning. Today is my special honor to teach you and preach to you about the doctrine of Christ. The word doctrine, by the way, means teaching. And we know Christ taught, but in this case, he's the object of our teaching. We're teaching about who Christ is. And I'm going to read this verse that I list here, and then we're going to go through verses that teach us about Christ. I'm doing this because in 1 John, it emphasizes the doctrine of Christ and makes it essential for salvation. It's essential that Christians know the truth about Jesus Christ. And it's essential that we confess the truth about Jesus Christ. 2 John 1 9 says, And anyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. So clearly, the doctrine of Christ is crucial and essential. Every Christian should love the doctrine of Christ. Every Christian should want to learn and know the doctrine of Christ. Now today, I'm going to follow a five-point outline that's very similar to what I usually do in gospel preaching, but I added a point. This isn't really balanced. Almost all of the sermon is about the first point, who is Christ? And then the second point, what he did. The third point, why we need him. The fourth point, what he expects of us. The fifth point, what are his promises to us believers? Who he is, what he did, why we need him, what he expects of us, and what are his promises. The first point about who Christ is, I'm going to proclaim from the scripture the eternal pre-existence of Christ. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a crucial passage in the Bible about the doctrine of Christ. It tells us a lot of things about him. For one, Jesus Christ existed as God and with God from all eternity. You've heard me say that almost every Sunday. Jesus Christ is not a contingent created being. Cults say that, but they teach damnable heresy. Now it says here, in the beginning, which is an allusion to Genesis 1-1. And so at the very beginning, before creation was, only God existed. Jesus existed as God from all eternity. With God, here uses this term in the Greek, pros. Some have even said face-to-face with God. So we know that Jesus has the nature of God, but he has his own person. See, in the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, which comes from the Bible, because the Bible teaches the deity of God, the deity of the Father, the deity of the Son, and the deity of the Holy Spirit. So the true teaching is that God is one in divine essence, but three in persons. So Jesus and the Father here are different persons, but they're both God. This is a doctrine that all orthodox, meaning sound teaching Christians, have affirmed for centuries and centuries. And we need to get it right. Cults like the Jehovah Witnesses deny it. Now, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is using logos in the Greek to identify Christ. Now, in John 8:58, Jesus made this claim. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, 
I am. Who is the great I am? Yahweh, God. Look at this verse, if you want to jot it down in your notes. Isaiah 41, 4, I'm citing the Net Bible. Who acts and carries out decrees? Who summons the successive generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am present at the very beginning and at the very end. I am the one. In the Septuagint it says, a go me, I am. That's what Jesus claimed for himself. So Jesus is God, Yahweh, the eternal one, the non-contingent. When I say that, it means he doesn't depend on anything outside himself. Also, Exodus 3, 14 and 15, God declared, I am. So Jesus claimed pre-existence and deity. Jesus is the creator of the universe. The Bible makes this very clear. I've just given you here two examples. All things came into being, John 1, 3, through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So John, after declaring Jesus' eternal preexistence as God and with God, says he's the creator. We must know this. God created the universe out of nothing. The universe is not eternal. The universe is contingent. God holds it together. Jesus is God, the creator. Colossians 1.16, by him, referencing Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Here is the supremacy of Christ. Jesus Christ created all that is, whether material or spiritual, and all of these things that can be identified in the entire universe are dependent on Christ for their existence. The triune God of the Bible, by the way, but this here is speaking specifically of Christ. In John 10, if you want to jot this down, the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, said his critics, because you, being a man, made yourself out to be God. Jesus' Jewish critics claimed he was a blasphemer because they knew he was claiming to be God. More on the deity of Christ, the Creator. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, now this is citing scripture, of the Son, he says, that is God or God the Holy Spirit who inspired the scripture, quote, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. Wow. How can anybody deny this? But many, many, many people are in horrible bondage to blasphemers and liars who deny the deity of Christ, who claim that his deity came on him at his baptism or something like that. That's all heresy. John said we must abide in the doctrine of Christ to have God as our Father. If we're going to know God and be saved, we must abide, stay put, and confess the doctrine of Christ. As you probably know if you're regular here, some of you are visitors, at Gospel Grace Fellowship, we preach this nearly every Sunday. I say these things when I present the gospel. Now, some churches incorporate statements in their liturgy that are accurate statements. 
Now you might ask, why don't we just do that? And then you wouldn't have to preach this long sermon. Well, I'll tell you why. Because I think confessing is more than reading a liturgy because somebody told you you had to. I sat in a liturgical church and heard the truth for 16 years. And I went to camp and talked to an ordained minister and he said none of it was true. It's all myth. Now this guy was obviously a heretic, but he was ordained. You can go to church and cite, and I'm not criticizing because I know true Christians are glad to cite the, the creed. But when we preach the truth right from the Word of God, it's so powerful. And that's what got a hold of me. Because when I heard the truth of the gospel, then I knew this isn't just a religious liturgy. This is the living God. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He does hear our prayers. He is coming again. And the things that we said were true. And why did that pastor say they weren't? And why, if he didn't believe they were, why did he have us have to say it because it was in a bulletin. We need to believe and confess the truth. And when Thomas saw evidence for the resurrected Christ in John 20, 28, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus accepted the adulation and worship of who we call Doubting Thomas. He was believing Thomas. He saw the evidence. This is the one who was raised from the dead. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a correct translation, by the way, and I will keep moving here because of time, but this has been proven from the Greek that it really does say that Jesus is God. So we'll go on here. The humanity of Christ 1 Timothy 2.5. So we know that Jesus is the creator, the pre-existent one. We know that he is God Almighty. We know that he's a separate person from the Father, the Son and the Father, or the Word and the Father. And now we know he was also truly man. 1 Timothy 2.5. For there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So when we preach the gospel, we say Jesus Christ was fully human and fully divine. That's true Christian doctrine. And we believe it with all our hearts as Christians. That's how we know him. That's how he's revealed himself. And people ask, well, why do you have to say these things? And why do you care about it? This isn't just religious tradition. A lot of people have traditions that go back for centuries. All religions do, but this is the Word of God that is powerful and quick. It makes us alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. This is the truth. When we hear the truth proclaimed right from the Bible that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, God pierces our heart. Oh Lord, this is true. I need you. I want to know you. It says in John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the what we call the incarnation. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is an allusion, by the way, to Exodus 34:6, if you want to write that down, where God, Yahweh, on Mount Sinai revealed himself to Moses. There's so much in this verse. The humanity of Christ. The glory of Christ. His glory is the glory of the Father. He's full of grace and truth like Yahweh de declared about himself to Moses full of said and emeth, loving kindness and truth. Almost all scholars think John 1.14 alludes to Exodus 34, 6. I've already preached to you 1 John 1, 1 through 3, the corporal reality of Christ's body, the same thing is proclaimed in Luke 
24:39. Now let's talk about the virgin birth of Christ. The virgin birth. We believe the virgin birth is literally true. Why? Because the Bible predicted it and the Bible proclaimed it. And Jesus, who was born of the virgin, proved that he's fully human and fully God by his life, by what he did. Luke 1, 34 and 35, Mary said to the angel, how can this be when, of course, the announcement that she would have a child? says, I am a virgin. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Oh yes, as we see, Jesus is the Son of God. Mary was a virgin who conceived by the Holy Spirit as predicted in Isaiah 7.14. This is a sign from God. A virgin will be with child. Matthew 1.25 says that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Oh, a hundred years ago, the liberals decided they were so smart and so intelligent, you can't expect modern people to believe in such a thing as a virgin birth. So they started denying it. One of the hallmarks of liberalism is denial of essential doctrines about Christ. But we know that the Bible is true. It's inspired by God. God cannot lie. God cannot lie. And if God said a virgin conceived, we know that it's true. Christ is also, besides the Son of God, the Son of David. Why is that important? Because the Bible predicted that David's greater son, this is 2 Samuel 7, would sit on a throne and reign forever and ever. He would fulfill the hope of Israel. God keeps his promises. It says in Luke 1.32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. There's the Son of God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. One genealogy traces Joseph back to David. That's his legal father. God is the one who caused the birth of Christ through the virgin birth. But legally, he's the son of David. And he keeps the promise that God had made to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14. In 2 Timothy 2, 8, it says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. It says in Matthew 1, 1, that Jesus' lineage is from both Abraham and David. God made covenant with Abraham and made a promise to him about his seed and that through his seed there would be blessing that would come. He made promises to David. Dear saints, do you know this? God keeps his promises. Boy, every week I email people who ask me about things. What do I do? What do I do? I say to everybody, believe the promises of God. We need to identify what they really are, but it's good to believe the promises of God. It didn't seem possible that David would have a man who would reign forever and ever in his lineage, but he did. The promise to Abraham seemed impossible, but God kept it. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Jewish Messiah. John 4, 25 and 26. The woman said to him, this was the woman at the well, a Samaritan. I know that Messiah is coming. Now, little aside, the Samaritans had their own version of Messiah, Habib, and that was uh, some kind of a prophet, but they didn't quite understand 
exactly who Messiah would be. They had some things wrong, the Samaritans. But here's a Samaritan woman. I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. That means anointed one. Ha Christos, the Christ. When that one comes, she says, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I, says Jesus, who speak to you, am he. Wow. To a Samaritan woman. And he told her some things that he only knew because of his deity. And she went running off and said, there's a man here told me everything about myself, everything I ever did. Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah. Jesus is God. God cannot lie. John 1.41, when the disciples were being chosen, he found the first, his own brother Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. Jesus said, I am the Messiah. In Luke 4.18, he cited Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The anointed one is the Christ. The Christ is the Messiah. The Bible is full of material about this. Oh, what a blessing it was to me to get to put this sermon together. It was an interesting thing. When you look in the systematic theologies, they talk about Christological heresies, and there's so much data. I finally just put it together myself from here and there because I want you to know who Jesus is, what he did, why we need him, what he expects of us, and what are his promises. Today, I want that to be true when we get to the end of the sermon, that you know these things. We're still working on who he is. He, Christ, as we mentioned earlier, is the Son of God. Hebrews 1, 5 and 6. By the way, as you noticed, all of this is coming right out of Scripture. I want you to know that this is what the Bible teaches about Christ, right from Scripture. Hebrews 1, 5 and 6. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Of course, the implied answer is none of them. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Psalm 2-7 is cited here, which says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You see the deity of Christ, and the sonship of Christ, and that there are two persons, the Father and the Son, plus there is the Trinity, that would be the third person, the Holy Spirit, but here we have proof of it. And the author of Hebrews is proving the superiority of Christ over the angels. In Colossians, we saw that Christ created the angels, and the Creator is always superior to the creation. And that's why we need to keep preaching these things. The world today in America is full of pagans. If people know nothing else, they're pagan. I talk to people myself. Oh, when I go into nature, I feel close to God. Well, nature groans and travails because of the fall. Nature is not a deity, and nature is not how we draw near to God. We draw near to God in Christ. We, dear ones, need to worship the Creator and quit worshiping the creation. Do you think your creation is going to take care of you? It's all a big lie. Reincarnation is a lie. The earth goddess is a lie. And there's so many naive Americans that just want to worship nature. That's why we need to preach Christ. We need to go to the source, to the creator, not just the creation. So Jesus is the pre-existent Son, the incarnate Son, and the exalted Son. Oh, how I love the book of Hebrews. 
You do yourself a favor by embarking on a study of that book. Christ is the Son of God. Again, more proof. Luke 22, 69 to 70. He said this to the Jewish authorities. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Now that is an interpretation of the New American Standard. In the Greek, he said, You said it. But it was implied, You rightly said it. I am the Son of God. So then they considered him a blasphemer and they crucified him. But when he was raised from the dead, he proved that he really was the Son of God. Romans 1 4, here's the passage. Who was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus is the Son of God and proclaimed that himself. Now man wants to mock God. In Luke 4, 9, and he led him to Jerusalem and have him stand on a temple and said to him, this was Satan, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Satan wanted to question whether Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus resisted all the temptations by citing the Word of God and by His resurrection proved He really is the Son of God. Jesus was really raised from the dead. Jesus is also designated the Son of Man. We've seen Son of David. Now another term or phrase applied to Christ, the Son of Man. Now, we see this in Matthew 26, 64. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus predicted that he will be exalted to the right hand of God, Psalm 110, verse 1, that he'll come again and that his glory will be displayed at his parousia. Now, the Son of Man is an allusion to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Let me read that to you. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, talking about Christ, who called himself Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is the Son of Man. He said in Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his fathers with his angels will repay every man according to his deeds. Jesus is the eschatological judge. Very important. When I debated an emergent false teacher publicly who wanted to say everything's evolving into God, he wanted to make all Christian doctrine of no importance and wanted to deny that there's a final judgment. I said to him that Jesus said that his word would judge us on the last day. Judgment will be based on our relationship to Christ and whether we're trusting him. And this fellow said, no, there's no such thing. Everything is good. Everything is holy. Everything is spiritual. Everything is evolving. It's all going to get better. How many of you know that if you let things just kind of go their own way, they don't get better? Anybody ever have a house to clean? Does it get better? 
No. We need God to intervene for things to get better. We need to trust Christ. Now, I'm going to do three points here. We're still talking about who he is. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. These things are told to us in the Bible. Who is the prophet? Let's talk about that. Christ is the prophet. Luke 9.35. Then a voice came out of the cloud. This was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's an allusion to Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. I love the Bible. As I was doing all of this study in the last couple of weeks to get this thing ready, I talked to Eric. We did radio on Tuesday. Do you think somebody could have just figured this all out and concocted the Bible? No. The unbelievable continuity of the promises of God in Scripture from Genesis Revelation tells me that the only way we have the Bible we have is God inspired it. Nobody's smart enough to dream this up. How would you have Jesus standing on the Mount of Transfiguration and hearing a voice from heaven saying, this is my chosen one, my son, listen to him. And if he had the Jewish scriptures, you know, old Moses told us that one was going to be sent, a prophet like me. And when he comes, listen to him. God the Father is telling us, listen to the Son. Let me just cite one verse, Deuteronomy 18:15. The Lord our God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, Moses said, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. He's the greater Moses, the promised prophet. This was cited in Acts 22:23, where the claim is that this was Christ, the prophet that the Lord promised. That's the claim in the book of Acts. So Jesus is the prophet. He's the high priest, the eternal high priest, a very special high priest. Not like the ones they had in Israel. This is the eternal high priest. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Let me stop and comment on that. That's why I tell people, believe the promises of God. The promises of God explain our hope. And when we have hope in God's unfailing promises, our soul is anchored. We're not tossed to and fro by the waves, every wind of doctrine. And when we become unstable and we become fearful, we need to remember the promises of God and anchor our soul. So this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus, talking about the heavenly sanctuary, has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is from, in the Old Testament, Psalm 110 and verse 4, which the author of Hebrews had already applied to Messiah. Not a Levitical priest, but the Melchizedek priesthood, the eternal one, forever and ever. Now, what does that mean to us? We can go to him. He mediates between us and the Father. He's on the throne of grace. He loves us. He answers our prayer. We can go directly to Christ. And he wants us to do that. So we don't need a man-made priesthood. In fact, the Bible teaches the priesthood of every believer. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Who did he write that to? The entire Christian church. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Jesus is the high priest, and all believers are priests to God. We can pray, we can make the sacrifice of praise, and we can preach the gospel. Prophet, priest, and king. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. An allusion to Psalm 110 and verse 1. This fulfills the promise to David. And it says in Luke 1.33, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Jesus is the eternal king. He's proclaimed to be that in Revelation 11.15. So Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He's the creator. He's the son of God. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. Hallelujah. He's coming again. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the king. Do you see why we need to preach on Christ? That's a pretty good topic, isn't it? Do you know him today? Think about this. Do you truly know Jesus Christ, the Lord the Savior. Let's go on. He's a sinless one who died for sins. Now we're beginning the second point of the outline. Don't panic. I'm not going to go all afternoon. The second, third, fourth, and fifth points are short because my sermon is about the doctrine of Christ. But this is important as well. Not only who he is, which we've covered rather thoroughly, but what did he do? Why did he come and was born here into this world of a virgin, was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin? Here's what it says, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is sinless. Why is this being told to us? Because we're tempted. We're very tempted. And we start doubting. Am I really a Christian? Satan said to Jesus, are you the son of God? What is he? He's the accuser of the brethren. Oh, so you say you love Jesus. Look at you. Look at your life. How great do you think you are? And what do you say? How do you answer it? By no merit of my own, I have the imputed righteousness of Christ. He himself has given me the garments that are appropriate for the marriage supper of the Lamb. He has imputed righteousness. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to know we can go to the throne of grace with all of our needs and all our problems and bring them to God. He doesn't get tired of us. He's God. He's omniscient. He has the character qualities of God. He can hear a billion people praying simultaneously. And he can know what all those billion people are saying individually. And he can and does care for each one individually. And he answers prayer for each person that comes to him. No human being who didn't have the attributes of God could do any of those things. That's why we have this great high priest. He died for sins, 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins, once for all, 
the just for the unjust. Here we have the substitutionary atonement. We don't have to die for our own sins if we believe on him, if we trust him. He died for our sins. He was and is the sinless one, the exalted Savior. Call on him. Call on him. Why do we need Christ? Now, I've told you who he is and what he did. Why do we need him? Well, I would hope that's obvious from what we just said. We're sinners, and we need a Savior. We need forgiveness of sins. We need assurance that we're right with God. And if we're not right with God, we need to know we can come to him, find forgiveness of sins once for all. Colossians 1.21, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Paul doesn't have to try to figure out which one of these people he was talking to. If he says it to all of them, he got it right. Who was it? Alienated, hostile, evil. Us. All of us. You know the myth that drives so many people? I hear this. I have interaction with many, many, many people all over the world through our website on uh, critical issues. You know what people are all looking for? A holy man. They want a shaman, a witch doctor, some guy in garb. You know, let's get all dressed up and have a big crown and big gold. And Oh, yeah, I'm a holy man. You know what? The only kind of man or woman there is is a sinner. And the holy one that we go to is Jesus Christ. We should never do anything to detract from the glory of Christ. He is the one we need. People think oh, maybe I'm a holy man. You gotta call me, I got all these troubles. Well, I wish I could, but I barely have enough voice to preach. So I have to email. But see, they don't need me, they need Jesus Christ. All I know is the gospel, but that's a lot to know. I hope you know it. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead. The Bible doesn't portray us as, well, pretty good, but we're just a little misguided. You know how we get rid of our own guilt? Oh, I'm not as bad as somebody else. They've done surveys of people in prison. None of them think they're as bad as anybody else. Well, I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. Well, I guess not. You got that going for you. But we've offended a holy God, and we need Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Doesn't mean that all are in Christ, but if you are in Christ, you're made alive. You come to Christ by faith. See, when we come to God, we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. Let me quote 2 Corinthians 5, 15. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Stop right there. Who was living for themselves? They who live. Who's that? All of us. But no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Jesus was crucified for our sins, and he rose again bodily, appeared to many witnesses, and bodily ascended into heaven. He died for all, but we need to repent. So that's why we need Christ. What does he expect of us? What does Christ call us to do. Mark 1.14. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying, quoting Jesus here, 
The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, the Greek that this was originally written in has a couple different words for time. One of them is chronos, where we get our word chronological. It means calendar time. And the other one is kairos, which means the crucial moment. So when Jesus announces the time is fulfilled, he's using kairos. This is the crucial moment in all of world history. When Jesus was born of the virgin, came into the world, and preached the gospel, this created the most crucial moment in all of human history. He is now Christ has come, and then he was raised from the dead. So this work of Christ creates a perpetual crucial moment that began then. It's crucial that we repent and believe the gospel. What does that mean? Well, we just saw a verse that said, so that we no longer live for ourselves. Without Christ, that's all we do. We may be religious, but we're living for self. We may have all kinds of things we worship, but we're still living for self. We're doing what pleases ourselves. Some people will try to do this and that, good deed to buy off their guilt a little bit, but it's all insufficient. Only Jesus' sinless life is satisfactory. This is the crucial moment. Repent. Turn from living for self and turn to Christ and trust him alone. That's what that means. Believe in the gospel. Well, the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why today I've been preaching Christ to you. So you know who it is that Jesus says you must believe in. You need to know who Christ is. Well, what is the work of God? What does he expect? All religions teach works. If you do enough works, you might be good enough eventually. Biblical Christianity teaches grace, grace alone. Let me quote Jesus on this point from John 6, 29. They asked him, what is the work of God? Tell us what to do. Maybe we'll do it if we like it. What is the work of God? Here's the answer. John 6, 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent, Jesus himself, the Messiah. What is the work of God? Believe on Christ. What did Jesus say? Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's calling us to come to him. Now what he's asking is that we do what his own person and nature makes it obvious that we must do. He created us. He's not going to run out of power to help you. He's not going to be put off if you ask him to help you. I was reading this verse. We did, Eric and I cited this on the radio. Well, we're not live on the radio, but we recorded it. We'll go up there. This is Psalm 50, verse 15. I love this. This is what God wants us to do. Call on me, he says, in the day of trouble, I will rescue you, and you will honor me. He didn't say, don't trouble me, I'm busy. He didn't say, well, go to some holy man, let him deal with it. He said, God said, call on me in your day of trouble. Reminds me of Hebrews 4, 16, about the throne of grace. And what will he do if we call on him? Rescue us. How many of us need rescue? Amen and amen. I need to be rescued. And what is the result of calling on him? And he rescues us. We honor him. They lived in an honor-shame society. To honor God was the greatest thing that we could do. So call on the Lord and be saved. That's the gospel. Call on him. 
We made it to our last slide. What are his promises? I added this to my gospel presentation because I want us to really hold on to that anchor that goes within the veil. It means it's not going to come loose. If any of you are like me and you're a fisherman, if it's real windy, a lot of times you throw your anchor out and the anchor just drags. Have you ever seen that? Then it gets worse because it fills up with weeds. And then it won't stop you, but it's so heavy, you're sitting there trying to pull the anchor up and it's got all these weeds. In the meantime, the wind is taking you way away. So I like that analogy. The hope that we have is an anchor for the soul within the veil. It is on the rock. It is wedged in a crevice of the rock, and that rock is immovable, and your boat isn't going to come loose. That's great. Now, if you're really rich, you could get a GPS front-mounted trolling motor and tell it to stay right here, and the motor pulls you against the wind. But I don't have that kind of money, so i got to have an anchor. I, I don't need to be quite that high-tech. There's some things you can't convince your wife that you really need. That one is a little out there. Anyhow, that's the anchor. As we close, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. It does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. That's his promise. Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost. The Greek there says, into the all. It's not just talking about time. Any way you can conceive of needing being saved, that's what he does. To the uttermost. I like that translation. He saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he is praying for you. Wow. So he will definitely save us to the uttermost. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your blessed Son, Jesus, who came into our world and suffered all the things that he suffered, for us. Thank you for loving us and showing us who you are by what you've done in history and what you've said in your word. And Lord, may we just always remember to call on you in our day of trouble. We know that we need you. And we thank you for allowing us to look into these glorious things. In Jesus' name, amen.